You're listening to the Rosenfeld Review. Welcome to you, listeners, and welcome to our guest today, Jill Fruchter. Jill, this is a weird thing. Jill and I are sitting in person in the studio in Brooklyn, New York, where I always do my podcasts, but I think after close to 200 podcasts, this is the first one where I've had someone in person. So we know the sound will be really good, but so will the interview. I walked all the way here. Yeah, from South Park Slope. That is a long way. (laughs) Well, Jill, it's great to have you. Um, I've known Jill uh, a little bit from local UX circles for quite some time. We we crossed paths when Jill was working at Etsy. And uh, Jill went on from there to uh, Blue Apron. Uh, as the VP of Customer Insights and Experience, did that for a number of years and now has her own consultancy, Field Notes Consulting. And, uh, you know, one of the things that Jill is interested in um, is like something I'm interested in. It's like if I had a parallel path, I, I wish I could have like spent my time figuring out how to pull ideas and evidence and data together into something bigger. And uh, if you've listened to this podcast at all over the years, uh, you probably heard me rail on about my inadequacy of, of dealing with that. But the good news is that there's people like Jill who are tackling this and, uh, and learning and most of all sharing. So Jill is going to be doing two things at next month's advancing research conference, which is like a month from now. It's March 27th through 29th, and it is virtual. It's one of those wonderful virtual experiences that we've been able to deliver. And um, Jill is doing a a talk called Inconvenient Insights. The researcher's role is to stay curious and a workshop, Holistic Insights, Collapsing Functional Silos for Maximum Impact. And I love those collapsing, crushing, (laughs) destroying silos. So you must have some feelings, Jill, about data, about evidence, about research. Use the word insight in the title of both. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you really feel about these things? <laughs> so I have this love-hate, hate's too strong of a word, but relationship with data. Um, I've become what I call sometimes a, a full-stack researcher which is just sort of methods agnostic and data, the form factor of the data agnostic and just leading with the question and, you know, interrogating all of the data to get to the the true, the real insight um, or the root cause. And the, the functional silos bit is as I've been at different companies and, and mostly I've been at startups um, and uh, I've been on big te- research teams, and I've been a team of one or two, and I actually find similar things happen, and I've always just been um, focused on how to work smarter mm-hmm. with all the... The data's everywhere, and more and more everyone has this self-service relationship with it, and that can be great, but... I kind of go back to my, um, I started this field in the library and information science world, and it's this juxtaposition, but also the harmony of control and access. 
So I think it's great that, you know, there's no problem that there's access, right? Um, but the control part is just make sure that you're not bringing some bias to it that's not exposing the truth or that's not joining the data up to get the full story. So that's sort of the the idea be- behind the holistic mm-hmm. is that as researchers, we have to be like hunters and gatherers. Mm. <laughs> and and then I try, and then you could say, well, but Jill, that's so hard. You know, there's, the context is different. You know, how do you, because I'm obsessed with, you know, there's a lot of um, trends now, which I, again, not a problem in and of themselves of different, how do, how do you collect and store inside or, or research and findings? But then it's so easy to lose context. So the way that I have come to recover context and in order to join the data and bring the data from all over the company together is through human scale frameworks of things like journeys. Mm-hmm. So an experience mapping and just taking that researcher's lens, that outside in um, approach that you can't argue with. Like, I think I got into research because I, I'm not good at arguing. Wait a minute. I'm not. And I'm not good at confrontation. So <laughs> I'm about, so it's just like, well, how do we get to the truth without arguing? And mm-hmm. it's like, well, what is some shared language we could have that it wouldn't be about opinions or who has the most data? It's, it's that outside in perspective that brings it all together. It, it, it's interesting. So first of all, I was looking for the, you said love, hate, and I've been looking for the hate and at best I can come up with is maybe you're not so fond of, of the silos and maybe yeah. the linguistic disconnects. And just I do see, I have seen, and this is what spurs the passion to to share how I've made it work to get to real insights. I've I've just seen a lot of like false causalities claimed mm. and a lot of confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. There's a tremendous amount of confirmation bias. And it's not even their fault. You know, it's so you have to. And, and so a part of my my talk and, and the workshop, I talk about these interventions. And that's because I want to help people. You know, you can go to, oh, we need to change our orgs. We need to change the design of our orgs, you know, all of that. I want to give people some tools that they can use today without having to do that macro mm-hmm. job. And so interventions are how can you, in, in certain moments, intervene and then say, well, hold on. So we have that data that says that. But what about our insight, you know, that's saying this? That doesn't really seem to true up. So just always, like, supporting a, a more fuller conversation. So for you, is an insight like the big discovery that is only possible if you synthesize data and other information from these different streams generated out of different silos or practices or kinds of researchers? Or is an insight like another way of putting thick data versus big data? You know, like one is data data and maybe an insight is more of a you know, semantically rich observation. I think an insight is the is the so what, mm-hmm. you know, 
So it's not a finding or a statistic or, you know, from one source, we know this. It's it's getting back to um, sort of the the consequences and the implications of of. So it's it's not it's not data. Mm-hmm. And I talk about that, too. The um, information hierarchy it, mm-hmm. It's really amazing how you mean the whole uh, data, information, uh, knowledge, wisdom. Right, right, and that data and information are on the bottom of the pyramid. And if you look at it as a pyramid, then there's um, knowledge and wisdom ahead of that, and you can think, oh, so it's the same mechanism that gets you. Like it all can be derived from each other. And it's actually a little bit of an upside down pyramid, I think, because everyone. I see a lot of people framing the problem through data. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe that's what an insight is to me, is truly framing the problem. The data is supporting evidence, but it's not in and of itself the problem. And so in the triangle, to get to knowledge, it's a different um, dynamic that gets you there. It's questioning. It's combining. It's joining. It's... It's being wrong in order mm-hmm. to figure out how to how to be right, mm-hmm. and so. Well, you, know. you you were talking about interventions. That that's um, it's a it's a really powerful term, and uh, especially in the workplace, which is where you're talking about doing it. So, who might intervene with whom, when, and like. To do what? Like, what, what's an example of an intervention? Yeah, it's like to recover truth. So <laughs> that's not small. But um, so I can get, give an example, I think, from Blue Apron, um, which is a direct-to-consumer meal kit company. And um, we, when I first got there, the leaders who were the founders were just like, you know, skip is bad. Skipping is bad. Skipping a week is bad. Because that means you don't sell a box that week. So I spent a long time um, sort of asking, is it bad? Mm -hmm. And again, through that human scale of, do we want to support the customer relationship over time? Or are we supporting weekly sales? Of course, you want to do both. But a customer relationship and not having to acquire customers over and over again, you know, and and super satisfying that customer so they become your your marketing channel or one of them i think that's as important as that as that weekly sale so i i would be in meetings this is where the intervention comes in and it would just be looking at stats and just trending and and his and and they would see that skip you know oh there's a lot of skips this week so in terms of the intervention um i think what i did was well well let's we, we looked at a, uh, I think I created a survey or there was a survey in place. That's right. And I said, well, let's really code the answers to other because it was a very narrow set of options that we gave people to tell us. It was so like, lots of other. Yeah. And that and others, the enemy. That means that's a survey crying for help, mm-hmm. right? Saying you're not asking the right things. And basically, um, a critical mass were saying, this is working as intended. This is great. Like, you're, li- you're being flexible. I can be flexible. I can get you when I want, not when, you know, not when I can't, because I'm traveling mm-hmm. or whatever. But without recovering that context 
And so the insight there versus the data is how critical convenience and flexibility is. Mm. So it's so easy for different parts of the company to be like, it's all about the physical product. Like for this company, it was, you know, food product. And it's like, oh, it's all about the, the checkout flow or it's all about the, this. It's like, well, it's all of it, right? It's the end-to-end experience. And just because you control this part of it and then you hear we're having a problem with skips, maybe it's not the food, you know, and actually maybe it's not a problem. Well, it's interesting. You've got, uh, you know, you, if I understand what you're saying in this example, um, the the annoyance of the quant researcher by having all these answers that are not, you know, uh, easily answers. coded is the the boon to the qualitative researcher. And I'm because sure there are the reverses of that as well. Absolutely. So there, the false, like, quant versus qual, it's so false. There is no verses. They complement each mm-hmm. other. All the time. <laughs> I mean, there's just no other way around it. Um, but I'm, I'm sympathetic. Like, you use the tool you have, right? And again, that's the silo part, is that people, so the product, the PMs, you know, they're working with experimentation, and they're doing single variable analysis, mm-hmm. and they're controlling for that single variable. And that's great for optimization. But in terms of, like, really again, designing against the problem to solve, maybe it's, it's not their single variable that needs to be solved for. Well, okay. So um, that was an interesting intervention that you had to be there, there for yeah. and ready to give yeah. and confident Yep. In your stature in the organization, and you had a pretty senior role at Blue Apron, if I understand it. Now, what if I am, let's say I'm three to five years into my research career. Maybe I'm a, whatever kind of research I'm doing, maybe I'm a data scientist. And, um, you know, I'm kind of not only encouraged to stay in my lane mm-hmm. and work with the tools and the data that is sort of, you know, my craft. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm discouraged, actually, from going outside that because that's not my job. That's not the job description. Mm-hmm. Our research job descriptions, I don't think, say, oh, spend, uh, you know, 20% of your time with people doing other kinds of research with whom you may not even share a, a vocabulary sufficient to even have a conversation about your work. Mm-hmm. And... How do we get those people, um, whether they need permission or encouragement or they need their jobs reconsidered or we need them to get their jobs rewritten, how do we get them to be able to do these kinds of interventions? Or to support the intervention. So um, I'll go back to an example at Etsy, um, which I joined Etsy at a time where I was a strict qualitative researcher whether it was focus groups or qualitative usability testing, that's what I knew. And I saw where the world was going, and Mm -hmm. I was like, I better get in with this big data, data science, machine learning. I better understand, you know, how it all fits together. And so it was exposure for me. So I joined, I was lucky enough to, um, I was on researcher number one or number two at Etsy when they started their UX practice. And everyone's question there was like, 
yeah, how does this fit with experimentation? Like we do multivariate testing all the time. Isn't that an, enough? And of course, mm-hmm. it always goes back to like, well, what's the why? Anyway, so there were some brilliant, still are, um, engineers, um, you know, machine learning, data scientists there who really drove the bus. And they, we had a, um, I was doing a usability session. So here you were talking about, well, you were senior then, you had some influence. That makes sense. When you have sort of less influence, maybe how, how do you create impact and change? And so I was just doing like a regular usability test, but I would always really encourage observation, um, you know, by by the the team. And this team was really engaged. And actually, they were really frustrated Mm -hmm. that they couldn't, in their words, math their way to the solution. So this is this will date this a little bit. But at the end of the usability um, research or one of the sessions, one of the engineers was like, that was better than an episode of Game of Thrones. And, and it wasn't a violent usability session. Right? <laughs> but the point was, is that they were so frustrated that they couldn't get to an answer. And now they had more information. So I just see everything as data. Like that was data for them to bring in to mm-hmm. their schema of like how to what they were solving for. Mm-hmm. And how to solve for it. So even though it wasn't mathable? What do you mean, even though it wasn't mathable? They, they, they were frustrated that they, they couldn't math the solution? Yeah. yeah. And they were okay with it? Absolutely, because here's what I learned about engineers and, and, and PMs. And I, and I talk about this, um, is how to have empathy and kind of use UX practice to work with your stakeholders. They want to do good work. They hate throwaway work. Right. And so to do good work, they need to deeply understand where's the opportunity and what's the problem. So once you see it from that lens, you have, as you said, permission to be like, come, come watch the, the, the research, you know, and yeah. And they're relieved. So like, all right, now I can, I can do it. And that, that happens again and again, like I was, um, we talked about journey mapping and, and ex- or experience mapping, and I love that, and I use that as an intervention because the, there are so many different primary and secondary gains to that. But one of the most important ones is bringing different cross-functional teams into the room together. And then together, we, when you put it through, like, okay, so what do we know about how long it takes between the first and second purchase? Mm-hmm. Or I think we do know that, but some something else. They'd be like, oh, we don't we don't get data like that. We don't structure our data that way. But then you've got them saying, but now I want to. You know, so you just sort of give them for they they want to fix things. They want to win. Um, a friend of mine said, I was like, what's a what what turns on the PM? They're like, they want to make the the touchdown. Right. The, it's the touchdown pass. So I see what I do is like, I want you to make the touchdown pass. But you can't do it without, you know, some more information. So You're making me hopeful. And <laughs> you know what? That's actually a great way to feel going into the break. Okay. We're going to do that right now. We are listening to the Rosenfeld Review. We'll be right back uh, and we'll learn more from Jill Fruchter in just a sec. 
I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you want more, not only do we have a whole bunch of podcasts in our archive, but we have something that's very current, very alive, and very engaging for groups. And that is our communities. Rosenfeld Media runs a variety of communities that meet on a monthly basis for video conferences on a variety of topics near and dear to UX people, ranging from enterprise experience to advancing research to design and research operations. I want to encourage you to join one of our communities. Again, it is free by going to rosenfeldmedia.com communities. Not only will you get a monthly video conference that you can listen in on and participate in, ask questions and so forth. We'll give you access to the recordings. And uh, for some of those communities, we're talking about dozens of recordings with really interesting presenters and facilitators. You'll also get a newsletter. You'll get access to an advice columnist. Yes, we actually are providing advice columnists for each community. And finally, if you're interested in our conferences, our communities correspond to our conferences. So you will be the first to know when programs, uh, when programs go live, uh, when tickets go on sale, and by the way, most of our conferences sell out, and other good things about our conferences, such as uh, when the scholarship applications open up. So go to rosenfeldmedia.com communities. You're going to find something that's free, something that's interesting, and it's a great opportunity to find your tribe as well. We'll see you there. Welcome back to the Rosenfeld Review. Lou Rosenfeld here talking with Jill Fruchter. Uh, Jill, I really want to go to your talk and attend your workshop at Advancing wow. Research Thank the you. end of March and everyone else uh, listening. I hope you do too because uh, these are great opportunities to learn from someone uh, who really has been through this as well as uh, really cares about advancing the field. But I'm going to... I'm going to push back a little bit, Jill, um, about interventions as like the main sort of driver for mm. helping people whose jobs it is not necessarily to to do that kind of work. And, and how, you know, you mentioned tapping frustration, for example, like mm -hmm. you have empathy with, let's say, your peer in data science because mm -hmm. they're frustrated and they want to do a good job. So does the, the product, the pro Product manager wants to score a touchdown, et cetera, et cetera. And everyone is frustrated. Um, but I was, I was talking with Jim Ahmed, your old friend from Etsy Days, who's actually one of the curators. I think my old boss. I think okay. she managed me for, for a second, yeah. And, uh, and you're still talking. That's good. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, and, um, and she's one of the curators at Advancing Research. And, and we were just talking a couple hours ago about the difficulties in getting people to find the time and effort to, to do some sort of, whether it's intervening or, or whatever it is, to look beyond their lane. And uh, especially when, you know, to take that metaphor a little further, you're swimming as hard as you can in the face of all kinds of challenges, layoffs now and, and all kinds of, you know, difficulties just to get your work done you have to stay in that lane. It's hard enough to, to, to just, you know, focus on finishing in your lane. And yet, you know, we have to sort of make a case to people that there's more to it than their work. So you, we were talking a little earlier about T-shaped people and you described yourself as someone who's T-shaped. Uh, if 
people are unfamiliar with that concept, the idea is that many of us in the field uh, are T-shaped. We have to have breadth of understanding of a lot of different areas, but depth in one that's often our craft. How can we open up the other areas, the, those outside the lane practices that are research oriented that may be happening in another office in our building or maybe in another building somewhere else altogether. We don't even know the people. We may not speak the same language and we have to find them. We have to um, connect with them. We have to empathize with them. It's really hard. Does it come down to leadership and their supporting these kinds of efforts to bring people together in their organizations? So we all may have different lanes, but if we're working in business, <laughs> we we have one shared outcome, mm -hmm. which is um, the customer's satisfaction in business, right? So there's there's no people don't use like product to use product. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Right. They're doing it to get something done, to feel something, to learn something. To So I'm not trying to go around your question, but I guess I don't really believe that there are separate lanes. I think there are separate technical competencies and hard skills and, and whatnot. But I, I do think we're all it's one goal. Mm hmm which is, and I'll just speak from the businesses I've worked, like retention, order rate, <laughs> lack of churn, which it, to me, I, here's something funny. This might, I was like, instead of, we're, we're all, all we talk about is churn. Let's talk about retention. Because <laughs> like, churn is so fear-based. It's like, oh, mm -hmm. they can't churn. It's like, well, that's a lagging indicator. I'm also obsessed with that, like lagging versus leading indicators. Mm -hmm. And that might be a, a related way to answer that question as well, is showing people how they're connected as all leading indicators to those very real financial outcomes. So... Um, Sounds like it comes down to, uh, to KPIs. KPIs or OKRs or whatever. But, but KPIs, I think, keep you in your lane mm. because you have your KPI, you know... I, I prefer okay, um, objectives and key results mm -hmm. because um, th I th think you can tie those better to leading indicators. So, And what do I mean by that? It's like there's upstream um, events that happen that have downstream consequences. So if you're, you know, the registration team, the growth team, um, how is it that what you're setting up has consequences for the retention team? So showing, you know, oh, well, if we get more people to select their recipes versus just letting us choose them, we know through data analytics and downstream analyses that that's a better experience. They're more likely to stay with us if they're mm -hmm. engaged in the activity. So all of a sudden that becomes, oh, so how can we encourage that 
as far up the stream as possible. So it's all just like it's it's all I don't know. To me, it's all completely interconnected through the human scale of the understanding. It, it sounds like you know to to make it maybe more concrete in the <laughs> corporate setting when we start having to talk about things like KPIs and and OKRs that um, you're encouraging. Um, people to look for things like OKRs, hopefully, that exist that speak to a broader purpose for the organization and how yeah. it relates to users. So, um, Customers. Customers. Or, <laughs> and even that's not the right word, right? But right. no one has the right word. Yeah. Um, but how do you do that uh, in a setting where Certainly in a large organization, an enterprise setting, we, we may not have an idea what the OKRs or other organizational imperatives are, or is that a cop-out? I think you, you create this demand mm -hmm. for the stories and the... I, I, hate, I remember way back when, when I was a junior researcher, it was like, it's all about storytelling. And I'm like, what is that? What are you talking about? And now I'm like, it's all about storytelling. <laughs> and I completely get it. And I've seen it work. And I see how important it is. So I think it's about, in a very just persistent way, coming back to the story of the customer or the user. And then the evidence or the KPR, or whatever fits inside of that, but mm. not the other way around. Well, one of the things I really like about what you just said is you just, I think, um, whether unintentionally or not, you just nodded your head toward the, the time factor. You talked about being persistent. Persistent. And, uh, you know, it's really hard if you're facing layoffs. You can't be persistent when they're not, you know, paying you. But uh, I just had a great conversation with um, an information architect who, who works at Microsoft and she's like, yeah, I'm five years into this. And I think we're at like 30% of the way where I want to be. Oh. And that said a lot. Yeah. And um, I, I do think we underplay just how long culture change takes. And mm -hmm. that's really what we're talking about. Yeah. Jill, um, speaking of information architects um that's like a reminder to myself that uh, you have a background a lot like mine information and library studies mm -hmm. uh, which is now called i school information and, science well somehow yeah. a library is, that, isn't yeah well because you know who's getting uh, money from mm -hmm. from from yes. that side of things <laughs> but um uh where and 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 why and well, what's it mean to you now that you know, you're a few years into your career since you were studying those areas. Oh, but... a lot of years. In. I, I love that question because when I was writing this talk and, and the workshop and thinking about it, I was coming back to things that I was introduced to in library school. I was like, that was forever ago. That was before my two children. <laughs> but it was so um, persistent. So here's something interesting. I went to... I chose to go to information and library science school because, frankly, it was geographically desirable. Which one? I went to Pratt. And that was important to me because Pratt is fundamentally a design school. Mm -hmm. And I'm always at this intersection of design and sort of analysis or science or, or 
the crap that I research. Um, so I, I loved that. But I say I went because it was geographically desirable because I assumed back in the day, you'll remember, the big thing was com- computer-human interaction. Mm-hmm. But that was in Carnegie, at Carnegie Mellon, that I, or it was on the West Coast. I was like, I can't go there. So how am I going to get where I want to get to? Um, and and I never intended to be a librarian. I don't have those those uh, those skills, like those frontline you know, skills. Same. Um, Yeah. (laughs) But so I chose to go to library school and then have a focus on sort of communications. And so we talked about the information hierarchy pyramid. That was one thing that interestingly came back because I'm like, data's dumb, isn't it? I mean, data's amazing, but essentially it's dumb. So that's what I, it's something to be acted on and to Mm -hmm. be interpreted. And then the other one was communication theory, which is message sent does not equal message received mm-hmm. and why there's um, noise in the middle. And the noise in the middle can be cultural, can, I mean, can be technical, technical yeah. <laughs> can be any, any number of things. And then my background in like anthropology and sociology and social psychology, that was like my undergrad. I don't, it's, it's always just... Um, it keeps coming together because it's still it's it persists because humans we deal with the same issues like we don't change that much as humans <laughs> you know the tools change the technology change but our needs desires wants goals aspirations you know um doesn't doesn't change that much that's such a great point i was just reading something about you know human well, humans have been around for, what, half a million years, give or take, and yet, you know, it's only in the last few thousand years that we've learned to write and create, you know, yeah. technologies and, and become agricultural. And it's like, but we were the same 350,000 years ago biologically and, and maybe even smarter. And then, there, and then there's all this science that the human, you know, and human consumers, you know, we, we are emotional decision makers. So whenever we math our way to the answer, like, how do we get them to buy more? And it's not going to be through a mathematical equation. It's going to be through a means of persuasion by understanding what, what they're trying to do through this like, what is the value exchange Wait, that's happening? You mean I can't just lower the price of Rosenfeld Media Books and expect sales to skyrocket? Don't answer that question. Let's <laughs> let's wrap, though, speaking okay. of books, with a um, – I think you have at least one uh, book in mind that might be a gift to our listeners. Yeah. I have um, – I get a lot of inspiration and always have um, from – and I'm sort of a little nerd – about urban design and planning. And I think the relationship to this audience or why I love it is it's per- persistent in showing the relationships between the whole and the parts mm-hmm. and how you have to maintain the vision of of the whole that you're trying to create, you know, and then how do you manipulate um, and understand the parts to to get there. So someone like Jane Jacobs is, I think, is a great read and and um she's sort of fight or was fighting the same fight some of us are fighting to maintain the the human um scale of of the work we do 
I love it. Uh, and of course, I'll have to put a plug in for her nemesis and, and uh, enemy number one, uh, uh, Robert Moses. And if you haven't read The Power Broker, you'll get the same type of thing. It's a, it's a symmetry between the two but like a very different very understanding different. of people. I think he mathed it, thought I think he, he could math his way to the answer. Well, he, he, <laughs> he had a very good uh, understanding of people and how to bully them. Mm. So uh, He I, was a good bully, that's true. Great bully. Yeah. Jill when Fuck did that there. help society? Oh, though? God, yeah. yeah um, no. We'll talk about what he was going <laughs> to do to Park Slope on the way out. Hey, Jill, thank you, first of all, for coming in. This is really a lot of fun to have you in person as uh, my very first in-person podcastee or interviewing. Uh, folks, you um, really need to attend the Advancing Research Conference, March 27th through 29th. Jill is one of our many fantastic speakers. Her talk um, is Inconvenient Insights. The researcher's role is to stay curious. That's the talk she's giving. And she's also teaching a workshop if you want to learn more about how to do some of the things we've talked about today, holistic insights, collapsing functional silos for maximum impact. It's all virtual, and don't let that stop you because we think virtual is good. Thanks so much, Jill, for joining us today. Great to have you. Hey, it's Lou. Thank you for listening to the latest Rosenfeld Review podcast. I really appreciate it. I would love to hear from you. And if you want to pop me an email, Lou at RosenfeldMedia.com. Tell me what you thought. Better yet, leave me the hell alone and post a review on your favorite podcast platform. Please feed the algorithm. It really does make a difference. We want to get the word out. If you like the word, give us a hand. And uh, while I'm asking you for favors, don't forget, buy books. Support your favorite local independent publisher. We happen to be one, RosenfeldMedia.com. All those great UX books are there. So, thanks again.